1984, Prince wrote the song Manic Monday for his Purple Rain co-stars Apollonia 6, but he wasn't satisfied with the recording and put the song in his vault. Two years later, he gifted the song to the all-girl rock group The Bangles, allegedly to seduce their singer Susanna Hoffs. The Bangles' version of Manic Monday was the first single off their second album, and their first verified hit record. And a big hit it was, in fact, staying on Billboard's Hot 100 list for 20 weeks. On the week of April 19, 1986, Manic Monday peaked at the number two spot on Billboard's chart, besting other hits like Robert Palmer's Addicted to Love and Falco's Rock Me Amadeus. But there was one song that blocked Manic Monday from reaching the top spot, one song the Bengals simply could not overtake. Naturally, that song was also written by Prince, performed by him too. On April 19, 1986, the number one and number two most played songs on Billboard's Hot 100 were Prince songs. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to get through this thing called life. Electric word, life, it means forever, and that's a mighty long time. But I'm here to tell you, there's something else. The afterworld. A world of never-ending happiness. You can always see the sun, day or night. So when you call up that shrink in Beverly Hills, you know the one. Doctor, everything will be all right. Instead of asking how much of your time is left, ask him how much of your mind, baby. Because in this life, things are much harder than in the afterworld. This life, you're on your own. If the elevator tries to bring you down. everybody, welcome to another episode of Fire and Water Presents. I'm Ryan Daly, and I've got an extra special guest joining me this time, none other than my brother, Neil Daly. Welcome to the show, Neil. Hi, Ryan. Thanks for uh, having me. Yeah, this is uh, when this episode drops. This will be two Fridays in a row. Uh, this is going to end up being your regular <laughs> slot. Yeah, this is my time slot. I'm in. <laughs> 
Uh, for those of you listening, you can probably tell from the intro music and the title of this episode that the subject of our conversation is going to be Prince, the artist, musician, rock and roll legend. Prince was one of our favorite musicians, and sadly, he died on April 21st, 2016. So, on the one-year anniversary of his passing, Neil and I are here to talk about the man, his music, his place in history and popular culture, and in some ways, his influence on us. So, Neil, <laughs> how and when did you discover Prince? And were you a fan right from Jump, or did it kind of take a while? Wow, okay, uh, great question. I actually remember the first time I heard Prince, there was a, a buddy of mine in the neighborhood, and this is, you know, when we were kids and everybody in the neighborhood played together and stuff like that. All the kids came out and waited till the streetlights shined until we had to go home. There was a buddy of mine, and I'm going to give him a shout out, named Nick Corvitaris. And he actually had, the, in, these were albums at the time, he had the double LP of 1999. And I remember him playing it, and pretty much right from jump, I was fascinated. I mean, some of the lyrics were dirty and risque, you know, different than anything I'd heard. But I remember the catchiness of songs like the title song 1999 and Little Red Corvette, as well as some of the long, drawn-out, extended dance tracks like DMSR and Automatic. I just remember it was so different than anything I'd heard. And I believe this was actually before I even saw a video. But, and I think Little Red Corvette it probably propelled him to the public. But I remember listening to this double LP and being fascinated. And then I started to just dig in a little dirt, like try and find through whatever was available at the time, uh, information about him and found out that, you know, he was basically a self-made musician, recorded almost everything himself, wrote everything himself, did all this stuff. But yeah, long story short, it was listening to 1999 with a buddy of mine from the neighborhood. And we listened to that repeatedly over and over. It was like an after-school ritual kind of thing. <laughs> and I was sucked in. And then that made me like kind of go back retroactively and find out that, you know, listen to the other stuff. But that was it. And, and to answer your second question, I was a fan right from the start. It was, it was even more so than I, I don't even want to say that I just liked him. I think I was fascinated and intrigued. That was more... Uh, an accurate description of I wanted to know more about this guy. Who is this guy? He talked about God. He talked about sex. He talked about partying. He talked about it, but he didn't drink. It was like this, this weird kind of concoction of who is this guy that created that much music? So that, that was my introduction. How about yours? I think my introduction was probably MTV. Uh, it's, it's certainly, it yeah. was the videos for either 1999 or Little Red Corvette. And to this day, I still have trouble deciphering between the two videos. Uh, I just remember <laughs> the sort of smoky effect on, on the black background and the, the purple, whether it's a, a sparkly purple jacket or like a purple mm -hmm. leather jacket. But yeah, I think the, the word fascinated is kind of the key there because I do remember liking the music and I to this day I still think Little Red Corvette is one of the most perfect pop songs uh, it's not his biggest yeah. single it's yeah. not his best song but I think in, tr in terms of just crystallizing kind of pop music at that time it's it's so good but it was But I just, I remember seeing the videos and just thinking, who or what is this guy? Because he's not like anything else that I was seeing. And I could tell it was Prince and Michael Jackson on like two sides. And Michael yeah, yeah. seemed like the 
more of the the clean cut, the happy. I I, well, I venture the term family friendly, um, <laughs> which 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 at the time it's yeah at the time we'll say uh, that might have been more appropriate. Whereas he was right. a safer choice. <laughs> he was, he was. Um, whereas Prince, you're right. Like he was talking about things that I at the time just I didn't understand. I was way too young, but I knew that it was. I knew it was risque, uh, even if I was so young that I didn't even know what that word meant. But I just, it was something about his presence, what he looked like, the purple, the sure. jackets, his his body language, the way he moved, how it, it was, it, it tapped into that part of me that just like likes, you know, flamboyant costumes like Star Wars or superheroes or things like that. He had that theatricality. He looked like he came yeah, out of a Batman comic, which would be absolutely. appropriate, absolutely. you know, uh, you know, five, six, seven years later when he did the Batman soundtrack. So I just mm. remember thinking about him that way. But it was still, I mean, uh, I was, I was really young. My music tastes hadn't quite been shaped. I knew who he was. I knew that you liked him. But it would have been closer to the mid to late 90s when I was in later high school years that I really kind of got into him on my own. And I talked about this a little bit on a, a previous podcast episode that I did the day that he died last year. Um, but it was it was kind of like the late 90s when I don't remember the occasion, but we had the movie Sign of the Times, the concert video. We had oh, it on VHS. And I can't wait to talk about that. <laughs> we'll, we'll get more into it later. But for those of you listening, like, our family, and I don't know if you started this or dad started this, but we had these brown box blank VHS tapes that we would record movies either <laughs> from tape to tape that we rented and didn't want to purchase all of it, or we recorded them from HBO or something like that, and we basically made mixtapes that were VHS, because the blank tapes were six hours long, so it was yep. back before every movie was two and a half hours long. You could put three movies on these tapes, yep. and I don't remember what was on it, but I know Sign of the Times was right in the middle of one of those tapes. It was sandwiched between two other movies that I would have been watching a lot more often. Uh, so I think I just I let the tape run one day when I was in the basement doing something else, uh, and it got to Sign of the Times, and I just started feeling like, I was like, man, I haven't listened, I haven't heard these songs in forever. And once it got to Never Take the Place of Your Man, that song, mm. which is my favorite Prince song, and the live version in that movie is so <laughs> good. And that was when I was like, oh, man, I, I need to own this song. I need to get it. And so I, I think that day I, I borrowed the keys. I got in the car and I went out to Downtown Discs or Record Revolution, one of the, one of the music stores in town. And yep. I think I got Sign of the Times in Purple Rain or it might have been Sign of the Times in 1999. And I think within mm -hmm. a week I had listened to them so much that I went out and I bought the box set of his triple disc greatest hits and B-sides um, mm -hmm. and just played through those. Uh, so it was... I knew who he was for the longest time, but it was really kind of in the late 90s in high school that I, I kind of rediscovered him or discovered him for myself and what I liked sure. about him. Yeah, so. yeah well, I, I give you credit. I give, I give you a lot of credit because for somebody of you know, your generation being younger, you know, a, a true fan of Prince would actually say that he, you know, he's always been around and he's always been in this prime. He mm -hmm. never, but in terms of the public response to him and uh, the media response to him and stuff, you know, that most people would uh, publicly say that his prime was probably mid 80s kind of mm -hmm. thing. That's that's where the thing. And then a lot of people thought he dropped off after that. So I give you credit for actually discovering him after post, you know, Purple Rain and going back and then getting into an artist like that where, you know, I had the luxury of actually 
going through him at his prime. So then I became a fan at his height and, you know, just kind of followed through the rest. So uh, props to you. And you're right, because it wasn't the music necessarily of my era. I was going back and listening to albums that came out 15 years earlier, maybe in some cases. Right. Whereas right. my peers, my generation, we were growing up with grunge rock from the Seattle sound or the emergence of rap and hip hop from, you know, like the West Coast. By the 90s, I mean, we were really getting into, we're talking about Britney Spears and New and, and Sync and those groups. Like, this is what the, the people of my class are listening to. Meanwhile, I'm going back and listening to the music of this guy who looks like a transvestite by comparison. And they're like, yeah. what are you doing? What are you listening to? I was like, I'll put this dance song up against your dance song any day. Sure, sure. And it's so funny because, you know, if you listen, if, you, if you're a true fan and you, like, follow his chronology of albums and stuff, I mean, aside from the fact that he was just constantly reinventing himself with every album. I mean, there's really not two albums that sound similar. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one of the things that's funny is, like, I remember when the song My Name is Prince came out, and it was like a rap song. It was a hip-hop rap song, and that was right about the beginning of the 90s. Mm -hmm. That was before hip-hop was really in full swing. Yeah. So he was kind of constantly cutting edge. I mean, his R&B stuff, his rock, his funk, his jazz, you know, when he brought in a horn section, he was always kind of ahead of the curve. So whether or not it was popular or not, you know, those, the trends that he set caught on eventually, and people don't give him enough credit for introducing some of the stuff that he did. You know, it's, it's funny you mentioned like some of those eras and those exploration because that's actually some of the stuff that I've been getting into of his lately. I've been listening to a lot more of his, the sort of proto-rap hip-hop songs. The Pope, uh, Acknowledge Me. Oh, Acknowledge Me is my yep. jam right now. I love that song from, what was it, Crystal Ball, I think that was on. Yep, yep, before this stuff. Yeah, yeah. What is, I, I, we sort of talked about like these eras, do you have a favorite album, if out of the album, um, or like, or a set, kind of like? Well, that, that, okay, these are two actually separate questions. Mm -hmm. In terms of, in terms of a specific era of Prince albums, I think it changes with the time yeah. and what I'm influenced by. I mean, there were periods where I remember, you know, periods in the 90s when I started to get into more rap and hip hop, and that became my kind of MO. I was listening to that far more than a lot of rock music. I started to be influenced more by the the Prince NPG stuff, the you know, new power generation, where he did a lot of a, a little bit. Everything sounded a little more hip hop. Like you said, the two songs you just acknowledged me in the Pope with this kind of danceable electronic stuff where there were like breakdowns in rap. It was almost like a new Jack swing kind of thing Yes, where he would sing R and B and then break into a rap and stuff, which became very, very popular with like Bel Biv DeVoe and, mm -hmm. and, and stuff like that. But, you know, then I'll go through a period where I'm into rock. I'll, I'll listen to rock stuff or, or, or danceable stuff. Or if I was like planning like a wedding playlist kind of thing, you know, I mean, there's like a whole bunch of different eras and time periods. Um, I'd like to hear you answer that question first, and then I think what I'd like to do is kind of discuss the actual specific albums, like maybe list like a top five albums. How about you in terms of an era or a period? Well, it may sound cliche, it may sound obvious, but it is sort of that sweet spot, the Purple Rush tour between 1999 and Purple Rain. Um, sure. If, yeah. I'm, if I'm listing my favorite album 
I think it's got to be Purple Rain. I don't think any other album is really coming close. Now, that said, I mean, I love all the songs on Purple Rain, but they might not necessarily Mm -hmm. be my favorite songs. But I just think the strength total, like pound for pound, like it really says something that when I think about the tracks on Purple Rain, When Doves Cry is one of the later songs that I think of. And that's a Mm -hmm. freaking great song. That's so good. But it's like, I, it's kind of just become so obvious almost uh, that it just, it, it kind of falls in the background. And, and that's sort of the way with Purple Rain, but I, I got to be honest and think, but between those two albums, but then, you know, my sweet spot, my, my era will range from, like you said, depending on what I'm in the mood for. If I want to have a more kind of disco jam, it'll go the albums before that, um, all the way sweeping up through the rest of the 80s with Sign of the Times up to and including the Batman soundtrack. Yeah. Right. Well, okay, let's talk about albums for a minute then. And and I have to admit, you know, some of the stuff, I, I do have to admit that, you know, this sounds anti-purist, but with, unfortunately, his passing a year ago, I went back and kind of rediscovered some things that I'd overlooked before. Mm-hmm. So, you know, some of the things that made my list are actually things I've just recently discovered, and I wish I would have, you know, kind of discovered them as they came out. But in, in my defense, Prince made it difficult to uh, obtain some of his music in the later years, too. He was very, very anti-establishment. So some of the stuff he was just releasing online to his fan club and whatnot. Anyway. So if I was to give a list of albums, and I'm going to run through these pretty quickly so we can talk about them later. Surprisingly, there's two of his recent albums that did make my list. Plectrum Electrum okay. was the album he did with Third Eye Girl. I think that's the, the all-girl rock group. Mm-hmm. And it came yeah. out just a couple of years ago. That's interesting because if you play it straight through, it's very, very heavy distortion, dirty grunge rock. And it kind of plays like, unlike most of his 2000s era stuff, it was very interesting to see him get back into that kind of sound. And it's funny because at the time he was also dressing very Jimi Hendrix. He was, you know, he went back, he grew his fro out and he was wearing Mm -hmm. tie dye and he was, so that kind of thing. And then also uh, 3121, for your fans out there that haven't discovered this album, 3121 is a surprisingly amazing R&D hip hop album. And that came out, and there were a bunch of singles that came off that. There were Lolita and Fury and a couple. It was just a just a really, really good rock album. You must have heard it on the news this morning. Congratulations, new stars born. Sons of shadow rose to a thorn. But there ain't no fury like a woman's scorn. And then, of course, you go through the obvious. So I, I, I had on my list, I had the Love Sign album, which I liked it because it played like a soundtrack. It was kind of, it's a, it's a long record, and it feels like background music, kind of, but very, very much a concept where you could play that, and it, it just felt like it flowed as an album. It's not like hit single, boring, 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 hit single, boring, 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 blah, blah, blah. So I liked that. And then, of course, I I would, you know, in no particular order, I tried to put these in order specifically, but they vary. Mm -hmm. Uh, I would say 1999, Purple Rain, the Batman soundtrack. But the one that never changes from my number one list is actually Sign of the Times. Yeah. And I I try to rank these albums. There were a lot of albums that had a lot of hits. There were a lot of albums that he, he did that had great singles but didn't come complete as as an album. You know, and, and when I'm talking about, when I'm going to rank an album, 
I'm going to rank it based on, can I put it in, play it from song one till song 20 and not skip forward over anything. And I think of those four, I mean, you can, like I said, you can interchange them pretty much any way you want, but sign of the times was one of the most fantastic pieces of music that I've ever heard. Yeah. 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 I, I, and I'm going to say like, if I'm doing a top five, it's, it's purple rain, Batman sign of the times, 1999. What would be number five? Uh, probably dirty mind. Um, yeah. and again, it's just uh, more of the recent stuff. Uh, like I, I've, uh, I've sampled 3121. That's gosh, you're kind of selling me on that one. I think I need to give that one a second shot because it's probably been, <laughs> I think you should. It's probably been, it's probably been a couple think, years since I've listened to it. And I don't need, I mean, I didn't even own it. I think I just, I either borrowed a friend's copy or just like listened to it when it came out on like, like a stream version of it or something. Uh, yeah. I'm going to make an appeal. I'm going to make a public appeal right now to all of your listeners right now to, to give 3121 a listen and give it, give it a good listen, make a playlist, play, put it in headphones and listen to it straight through. It's, it's a solid, solid piece of work and it just got no notice in the public. So, you know, this is in the era where everybody thought Prince just kind of disappeared, but it's, it's a great album. The other thing, speaking of albums too, you know, one of the things I would, I would like to give honorable mention. And of course, you can't mention the hits one and two in the B sides album. And unfortunately, greatest hits albums can't make this cut, <laughs> even though the B side album was fantastic. Yeah, it was. It was just excellent. But you, you know, it's unfortunate you can't put a greatest hits album on this no. on this list. I was making I, I was making a though, list. Sorry, I was making a list of some of my favorite songs, and a, and a lot of them were. I was finding, man, these are on the B sides album. <laughs> yeah, and we'll we'll talk about singles. We'll talk yeah. about the actual songs in, in a few minutes. But I, I give honorable mention to uh, the Crystal Ball box mm-hmm. set that you mentioned. I would like to give that because there were like Last Heart, Acknowledge Me, Love Sign. Uh, some of those songs are some of my favorite Prince songs of all time. But the four-disc box set is so heavy and so hard to take in. It's so much music, and not all of it's great. So I would leave this off my list as an album. Yeah. Yet, bear in mind that some of the tracks on that were just absolutely epic. We sort of kind of talked around your taste in the music. We've, we've mentioned that it's kind of changed over the years. And, you know, we, we both have varied and eclectic, you know, tastes in music that kind of range the gamut of genres. So uh, I, I did mention, you know, like one of my, the jam that I'm in right now, what I've been listening to is more of his like proto hip hop, new jack rap stuff. You know, at the time of his death, you know, a year ago, I would have been into more of the disco stuff. I would have been listening to sure. Controversy uh, and, and Prince, the first album and everything, up to 1999 with DSMR and Automatic, like you said. What about like some of your favorite songs in terms of like the singles? Like what? Do, I mean, because this is, encompasses a lot. Like, what are some of the ones that you find really listenable that you that you keep coming back to? And then, what are some of the more deep cuts that you that you've kind of discovered over the years? Well, first of all, let me touch on something that you just mentioned before the question, mm-hmm. which is the earlier albums and stuff. One of the things that I've found, and this is just unfortunately based on technology alone, is that some of the earlier albums I, I wouldn't put on the list because the technology and the recordings weren't as, weren't as good. You know, it's hard to listen to like Dirty Mind, for example, or Controversy. I've recently obtained through bootleggers and stuff uh, some remit, uh, or remastered versions of those that have they're heavier in the bass, heavier in the, the drum tracks. And they don't sound as thin and trebly as the as the original versions that were released to. And those albums definitely hold up and stand the test of time more when they sound like something like a DJ could play at a club now. Hmm. So it's interesting that it's unfortunate, but some of those earlier albums, through no fault of his own, probably suffered just from the, the recording technology of the time. You know, the recordings got better as time went on. 
So if you ever, you know, get a chance to like just crank up Dirty Mind, crank up some of the songs on Dirty Mind, like Uptown and Head and Sister and, and Dirty Mind with like a good, good, heavy bass line and bring down the trouble, bring up the bass. All of a sudden that album takes on a whole new meaning and that album is absolutely current and timeless and you could dance to it at a club today. Mm-hmm. So, all right, got, sorry, got off topic a little bit. Talking about his singles, uh, well, well, like you said, you know, we'll, we'll talk about some of the singles and then talk about some of the deep, deep album cuts. Um, the singles probably of, of the main released radio songs, I would say, I Want to Be Your Lover, which is, you know, just always like, every time that comes on, you just want to sing it. Yeah. Little Red Corvette, which obviously, as you described, you know, was probably one of the perfect, most perfect rock songs or pop songs. And it's so it's so interesting that that got such that that song is kind of the song that catapulted him into the public stardom, considering the subject matter was so, (laughs) you know, so risque at the time. I mean, it was it was subtle, but it was, you know, if you break it down lyric by lyric, it's it's a dirty song. Um, Then I would say. if I was your girlfriend and, and I could never take the place of your man, uh, those two would be on the list uh, from Sign of the Times. And I, I agree with you that I could never take the place of your man. And I've got an interesting story about this. This was probably the first Prince song that I actually learned to play on the guitar. A lot of the stuff, a lot of the stuff earlier seemed just kind of overwhelming and kind of it was so well produced and he did so many things and there were so instrument and a lot of it was keyboard heavy a lot of it was just a lot of things out there so you know growing up just having an acoustic guitar in the house you know you could kind of follow the baseline to a lot of songs but i didn't really play much prince on the guitar myself until this song this was the first song that i actually said oh there's an there's a guitar structure here and i can follow the chords and play it's g c and f and that's it and so once i realized that that actually helped me going forward into my future as a songwriter, as, as a guitar player. Like this was the first time that I actually like played a Prince song on guitar straight start to finish. So that will always hold a kind of special place in my heart uh, just because I could, I could actually play it. Uh, and then lastly, Ron, uh, I would say in any, no particular order, but Pop Life yeah. from Around the World in a Day, Let's Go Crazy. And I got it as, as cliche as it sounds, I got to say Purple Rain. I think is one of it, it's just the, the, like the greatest song. Yeah, it's it's again like between that one and when doves cry, it's like again like those like and they they fall out of my like I don't even think about them, but I should because those, you put those two against any other kind of like song from that generation, that era, uh, and, and yeah. what it showed about his musicality and his talent and everything like that. Yeah, when, when Doves Cry, when, there's a, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, there's a really quick story about When Doves Cry, which was, that was kind of a throwaway track for him at the time. And I, I read this recently where it was literally done in like, I want to say a day, mm. like a day, maybe two days or something. And if you listen to it, there's no bass in it. <laughs> and it's one, it's, it's one of the rarities, like one of the only songs ever to be a radio single in a hit nowhere that had no bass. It's basically a drum track and a keyboard. I mean, you could play that in person live by yourself <laughs> anytime and play it almost like a, an authentic version of the song. So that's, as a side note, that's just a fascinating story behind one of the biggest hits of the 80s. Dig if you will the picture of you and I engaged in a kiss. The sweat of the body covers me. Can you, my darling, can you? 
You've actually you've spoiled me for a few of my a few of his bigger <laughs> hits uh, since he died. When you were giving me a bunch of those old live albums and the B sides and the bootlegs, mm-hmm. I mentioned again the, the Purple Rush concert, the live versions of Let's Go Crazy, and even more so <laughs> 1999. Like 1999 was always a song that I was like, yeah, I like it, but it was never really a standout to me. I that one to me always kind of felt shallow maybe because it's it's just about partying sure. and it, i didn't really see any other value in it and it was just kind of like a little bit maybe overproduced maybe i don't know but hearing the live version of it when he has to substitute a guitar for some of the synth sounds yeah the yeah. live version of 1999 i i will play that all the time that is so good yes. um yeah just some of the other ones from the early like dirty mind do me baby i love those <laughs> yeah this actually got me thinking about some of the other songs that he isn't actually known for but like we don't usually think of prince as like a cover artist he has covered a few but he's mm-hmm. also written a ton of songs and material for other artists i knew you were gonna go there and yeah, the funny thing definitely. like with a few exceptions like i i really like his versions um like nothing compares to you which yep. there's a story behind it. he he wrote it. he gave it to sinead o'connor she ended up winning yep. like a grammy award for it chose yep. that opportunity to make a protest statement instead of thanking the guy who wrote the song for it. Yeah. But his version of it, and it's on the it's on best of like volume two. It's a live version that he does as a duet with another woman. That version is great. I love that. I like his version more than Sinead O'Connor's. Yeah, um, yeah. Rosie Gaines yeah. was the keyboard player in the band at the time. She was the one that did the backup. And if he actually if you dig deeper, he actually uh, the the first time that song ever appeared, he wrote it for a side project of his called The Family. Huh. And this was in a real early Minneapolis, 1980-something, uh, a little side group he put together, and he gave it to them first, and they recorded it. And if you'd listen to it, and, and again, I'm going to encourage your listeners to do some homework, go out and find the family version of it. Huh. And it sounds it sounds note for note exactly like what he did and what Sinead O'Connor did. I mean, it was obviously, the song was so good, nobody ever had to change Right, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I went to the the other one that I've just sort of been listening to a lot more lately, and I, I kind of forgot that he actually did it, was How Come You Don't Call Me Anymore? Uh, which was oh. a big hit for Alicia Keys uh, <laughs> yeah. a couple of years ago. But again, his version, and, and he, um, he's masterful because he can hit that falsetto and he can do a song that sounds like it was tailor-made for a woman with a higher a higher voice. He can do that oh, as, God, yeah. as well as anybody else. Uh, but that's a beautiful one, just him and the piano by himself. I keep your picture beside my bed Those 
now you're gone Have you, I'm sure you have, but have you heard the version of Manic Monday that he did with uh, Apollonia that he produced for that? Yeah. He kind of like sing it as a backup. Yep. That, yep. that is one of my favorite stories now. Like, I've, I've known this story for a long time, <laughs> but I love the fact that supposedly the, the story that I heard, he basically wrote it to court Susanna Hoffs of the Bengals. He gave it to her. Well, he wrote it for Apollonia 6. They recorded their version. He didn't yeah. like it. He just wasn't happy with it. Uh, and listening to the version... It's fine. It's it's not bad. It, it wouldn't really stand out on one of his albums. Uh, it's certainly the, the Bangles yeah. version is catchier. It's better. Yep. But I love the fact that he gave the song to the Bangles to record uh, and maybe ended up using that to sleep with Susanna Hoffs or not. I don't know whether or not <laughs> it worked. I can't imagine why it wouldn't have. I but, can't imagine why it wouldn't. For somebody as effeminate and five foot two and dressing in heels and paisley his entire life, he has had some incredibly hot girlfriend. <laughs> But I love that, that he gave them the song to, to woo her. To He's like, this is going to be your big hit. They did it. They put it out. It was their number. It, was, it reached number two. But the number one song that still stood in their way was, his, was yeah. a Prince song. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that Susanna Hoffs probably did sleep with him because of that. <laughs> I, would get, I would think that's a safe assumption. Yeah. So, okay, so so now we're we're starting to dig into some of the deeper tracks and things like that that were, you know, uh, I'm curious about some of the, the less popular, little-known, uh, deep album cuts kind of things. I mean, you know, if you're a fan of Prince, one of, the, one of my favorite quotes about a true Prince fan is they don't ask, what's your favorite song? They ask, what's your favorite version? <laughs> and, and that's kind of a running theme with Prince and stuff like that. And I, I would actually say, to echo your sentiments earlier about Sign of the Times, I think almost every song from the live version of Sign of the Times movie was better than the album version. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think almost every single song was better. So not necessarily sticking to live versions or anything, but I'm, what, are you, what are some of your, like, your favorite non-released, non-single, deep album cuts? The one that leaps to my mind, I guess it was really, it was part of that crystal ball, that big box set, um, yep. but it, more of an obscure one, uh, the song She Gave Her Angels. Uh, oh, Great guitar solo, beautiful yeah. song, beautiful song. Just again, yeah. it's him doing the falsetto. Um, I, yep. I, I don't, I don't know if you know this. I tried to convince mom to let that be our mother-son dance at my wedding. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that. Uh, that that's news to me. But that would have gone over better than the Tupac song I played. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I guess. But we, I, I think she knew better after your song. She was like, no, <laughs> let's, let's do a Van Morrison song and play it safe. Nice, nice. Uh, what about you? What are some of the other ones that you would like? Uh, well, I've, you know, I've got uh, 
the song, the title track from Parade, uh, Sometimes It Snows in April, mm. um, that I thought, although it was never actually released, is just a beautiful, beautiful song. I can't believe that that doesn't get more recognition. Maybe it's just because the movie didn't fare well, and a lot of people like, kind of overlook the album because it's a soundtrack album, mm. as opposed to just looking at it like a regular Prince album. You know, the, the album Parade, the movie was Under the Cherry Moon, the album was Parade, but I think they're so linked together that people don't give the album a chance necessarily. I was actually, I wanted to bring that up when we kind of talked about the movies, but I have listened to that album recently and it doesn't do a whole lot for me. I mean, I, I tried to give it like another shot and the, I, I mean, well, I think Kiss was the big uh, single from it, but sometimes right. it snows in April. I, I agree it is the best song on that album. Uh, I didn't like the movie, the album. It's not one of my favorites. Not, nothing bad about it. It's just didn't really hook me. But no, I, yeah. I like, well, no, I, gonna, I definitely, I like that song. It's definitely the standout of the album, but. Sure, yeah, I agree too. I agree too. And there were some cool elements about it. That was, that was a very experimental album. Mm-hmm. I mean, and you can tell, but if anybody's seen the movie, I'll be honest with you, the movie's bad. <laughs> it's flat out bad. Yeah. It's, I've, I've, I've tried to watch it a couple of times and it's just, it's just bad. But, you know, there, it was a very experimental phase. I think it was, it was right at the end of the revolution before New Power Generation. He didn't quite have a band and know what direction he was going to go. He was trying to do this avant-garde 1920s French, you know, thing, whatever he was trying to do. So some of the songs in there are interesting, but not radio-friendly stuff. But yeah, Sometimes the Snows in April is just a classic, timeless ballad. Just a sad, a sad ballad about losing somebody. Tracy died soon after a long-fought civil war Just after I wiped away his last tear I guess he's better off than he was before Then going down my list, like of the deep album cuts, you know, not singles and stuff, I would say Hot Thing from Sign of the Times as a dance track, uh, Irresistible Bitch, Mm -hmm. which was, aside from the hit B-side album, it was actually the B-side to Let's Pretend We're Married from 1999, Uh, Do Me Baby, which actually I think was released as a single. This might have been released as a single, I'm not sure, but that song is fantastic. I love it. And the story behind that, if rumor holds true, is that uh, he recorded that in one night alone in a studio with Sheila E. And apparently she was, uh, <laughs> while he while he was singing, she was doing things. Uh, <laughs> helping him re- doing, helping him reach the crescendo. Yeah, yeah. He was helping him reach that climax of the song. <laughs> so uh, that, that's a great story I always heard. You mentioned this earlier, How Come You Don't Call Me Anymore? Absolutely fantastic. That's a song that when it comes on the radio, when it comes on my playlist or whatever, I'll never turn it off. It's just fantastic. Yeah. Uh, Computer Blue, surprisingly, uh, from Purple Rain. I love Computer Blue, and I love the extended track that is hard to obtain. It's it's more like of the collector's editions, yeah. but there's a couple. There's a seven minute version. There's a fourteen minute version. There's a, a couple a couple elements, but. From the live concert video that I think I showed you mm-hmm. a while, like a year ago, yep. when they first debuted all the Purple Rain stuff, seeing how well they play that song live, I mean, everything sounded like they'd been rehearsing the stuff for a year. They were such a well-oiled machine, but that song sounded absolutely exactly like what was on the record. 
that's a song that again is another one that recently I've been getting into, and I was really glad when you gave me that when you hooked me up with the extended tracks because the song it was always one of those that I I didn't quite skip, but I kind of tuned out a little bit until I was watching the movie again. And just kind mm-hmm. of looking at his performance on that, and I was like, boy, I bet this is a really cool song live, like with all of the guitar parts on this. Uh, and then it's starting to hear yeah. some of the live, live parts and, and the jams that they did. And once I heard the extended cut, yeah, that, that's another one that I do like and I have kind of rediscovered more recently. Uh, yeah, and, and for, for your trivia buffs out there, there's an element in the extended version that comes in at about the uh, six, seven-minute mark uh, where the band's just jamming. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like the song "Automatic" from 1999. Yeah, but it's not. It's it's a it's just like a jam, a keyboard and riff jam that comes in just for a short period of time. They actually play that in the movie Purple Rain when Prince walks in on the rehearsal, but Wendy and Lisa aren't there, and the band's just jamming that out. That actually, if you if you go back and watch the movie, <laughs> that song that they're jamming is the extended version of Computer Blue. Cool. Okay. Yeah, it's really cool. It's it's, it's definitely. Go, go back and watch it. It's, it's something for that's a good trivia answer right there. Yeah, I need to do that. And then my last two for deep album cuts, I, I would say, and I'm sure you're going to agree with this, uh, Scandalous from yes. uh, the Batman soundtrack. Absolutely. Absolutely. My God, that's that's one of those, at the risk of offending anybody, that's like one of those like Tammy Dropper songs. <laughs> that song is such a, that's, it's, it's great. It's a love song. It's sexy. It's erotic. It's slow. It's it's melodic. It's got all the elements in its false set. I mean, it's, it's, it's just Prince being Prince. It's absolutely <laughs> fantastic. I, um, I I think I mentioned that one on the last podcast I did about Prince, and I I put Scandalous and Do Me Baby up together, and I said these are sure. examples <laughs> of Prince having sex with you through your sound system. Yes, yes, I I can only imagine that there's probably a ton of babies that were conceived <laughs> with those songs on in the background. Yeah, I'm, I'm I, I would actually I would actually bet on. And then my number one, my number one deep album cut, the B side to Let's Go Crazy, Erotic City, mm-hmm. uh, and this was. And the the interesting story about this, my connection to this song was going back to my youth when this was B sides were something I didn't quite understand. Like I was I was so young that I didn't understand how a song could be on the radio but not be on an album. Like how was this out there? I didn't quite get it. And you know I had the Purple Rain album and I remember getting that and it was cool because the Purple Rain album story is interesting by itself. You know that album reached number one. It was the first ever soundtrack album to reach number one before the movie came out. Yeah. So that was the story in and of itself. But I remember hearing on pop radio a couple times uh, this song Erotic City and I couldn't figure out where it came from. And so doing a little you know in my childhood days you know going to the record stores and asking and trying to find out they somebody alerted me that it's a b-side and i'm like what the, what the heck is a b-side i don't know what that means and they said it was uh, you got to buy the extended dance mix the 12 inch to let's go crazy which is a longer version of that song which is awesome too in and of itself but the b-side is erotic city and that's the song so i had to actually go out and buy another record which was the single but once i once i popped in erotic city and the funny thing is it's the simplest song in the world if you listen to it it's like a bass line and a drum track and it never changes it's simplicity is beautiful it's like less is more and i remember thinking at the time you know that i was like how can they play this on the radio because it sounds like he's swearing it yeah. sounds like he's saying that word and yeah. it's actually funk right um but that was absolutely amazing i heard that and then i felt like i had also there was a part of me that felt pride because i felt like i discovered something that nobody else knew because i had a b-size <laughs> 
<laughs> wait till the rest of the world finds out about this concept. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so I was like, I was like in the Prince Club at that point. <laughs> There was one other, it's a song that I put on my Batman podcast not too long ago for uh, when we were talking about a comic with the Joker and Catwoman because I thought it fit perfectly for both of them. It's on the, B, uh, yeah, it's on the B-Sides album from the Greatest Hits Collection. The song is La 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 He He He. <laughs> yes. It is, yes. it is such a, like, you, you almost think that like somebody dared him. It's like, can you write a song where the chorus is La 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 He He He? And he's like, yep. yep. And he writes a song yep. where he's basically he's taken the persona of a dog trying to woo a cat and you know, take the uh, sort of like the, the pussy metaphor even further. But it's such a right. fun and funky jam song. And it's it's playful. It's funny. It's sure. subversive. It's just pure Prince. And I love that song so much. Well, it's funny that you mentioned that because I think in the in the album order of of the B sides album, I think it's either right before or right after Scarlet Pussy. It's right after, so yeah. I, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, I think it's probably placed there for a reason. That, that, that's, do you funny. get it? Do you understand what, what the Joker's making here? Like, yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, one more honorable mention that I'm going to throw out there because it wasn't actually a Prince song, but it was a cover. I don't know if you ever heard this, but in 2007 he did a uh, a tribute to Joni Mitchell. And there's a piano ballad he did called The Case of You. Oh, it's so good. And, oh my God, it's absolutely awesome. And the funny thing is, the version I've heard, like, I've never heard the original. I've mm. never I've never actually gone back and listened to the original, and I don't want to, because I am so connected to Prince's version of this song. It is absolutely beautiful. And it's, again, one of those slow piano ballads that just showcases his musicality, uh, his ability, you know, like his vocal range, his skills on the piano, on the keys. It's just, it's awesome. So, few fans out there, if you haven't heard this one yet, dig deep, go find The Case of You from the Tribute to Joni Mitchell album by Prince. It will blow your mind. That is a song, I, I, I forgot about that one, I'm so glad you remembered, because I did want to, I had a point about this one. That is a song that I would give to somebody who hasn't heard Prince, or who has some sort of stigma against Prince. Like, somebody who thinks, <laughs> yeah. somebody who thinks Prince's music is dirty, or they don't like the dance style, it's just not their style or something. Somebody who might have an aversion to check checking out Prince, I would give them that song. 
I was like, it's not even a yeah. song. It's a Joni Mitchell song. How much less offensive can you get? Just try right. this one. And <laughs> right. it's so good. It, you're right. It's, it, if Prince wrote that song, it might be my favorite Prince song. But I have to kind of disqualify yeah. it because it's not an original. Of his. He, he just did the Sure, cover. sure. Well, I'm, I'm happy he didn't write it because then I can have an addendum to my list. <laughs> it gives, me, <laughs> it gives, you it gives me room to add one more. It gives you a nice, nice that excuse. In my blood life. talked a little bit about Under the Cherry Moon. We've talked about Purple Rain. After he died, I went back. I, I got Purple Rain because I don't know why I didn't have it in my collection, but I, I went out and I, I bought it and I started watching it. And there are things about the movie, like about his character, that you just have to sort of allow for the, the change of the times. The fact that he beats Apollonia, that he hits her. Uh, his, yeah. his treatment of the, of the woman in the movie is not good. You, no, you understand not. why he's doing that. You understand what part of his character, what there's drawn from his relationship with his mother and father and their relationship. It's still hard to make an excuse for it. You just kind of have to say it was 1984. It was uh, you know a different yeah. world. Yeah. But other than that, it's fun. Do you think the movie still holds up, or do you think it's? Uh, yeah, yeah, I actually do. I actually do. And I, you know, of course, I've seen it a few times in the last year since his death, um, which would probably. You know, it'd probably been about 20 years since I saw it before that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the interesting thing is, if, if you go back, first of all, the fact that the movie got made is an amazing story in and of itself, because Prince basically went to Warner Brothers and said, and, and by the way, his record deal that he signed was unprecedented, because he signed it at like 17 and mm-hmm. said, I want complete creative control of all my albums. And they gave it to him. So <laughs> that, that in and of itself is ridiculous. But he goes in basically... Up to this point, the only money the record label had made was off of Little Red Corvette single. And then he goes into the studio and says, I've got an idea. I want to make a movie. And they're like laughing him out of, out of the room. He goes, he goes, no, I'm serious. Like, like I'm going to make a movie, whether you can back me on this or not, but I've got the music for it. I've got a story. It's loosely based on my life, but we'll, you know, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, we're doing this. And somehow little five foot two prince convinced Warner Brothers to give him seven million dollars to go do a movie about himself. And he was like I said, you know, at the time he was only little red Corvette was his hit. That's yeah. I mean Michael Jackson didn't get a movie. So <laughs> that in and of itself is fascinating that they actually somehow got they financed the movie. So that being said, and then the original the the original version of the script, from what I hear Prince had more to do with the actual original version, and it was it was it was dirtier, it was uh, more violent. Uh, there were scenes that got cut out with like he got in physical fights with Morris Day, and there were more scenes with the beating of the women, kind of the father beating the wife. Uh, there, there was more of that that the studio ended up cutting out in order to make it. But I do think you know that's it's one of those things. It's hard to call it a musical because the songs are performed live on a stage as opposed to people breaking into song mm-hmm. on, like in public places where, you know, the modern name musical, what we think of are something like Rent 
or something like that. Yeah. But it is a musical. And I think because the music was so good and holds the test of time, I think that carries the movie. So if you go back and you're watching it and you're critiquing it based on performances or the story or the love relationship and stuff like that, you know, it's easy to, it's easy to nitpick. It's yeah. easy to like, you know, find mistakes in it, but you know, we could do the same thing with a new folk from star Wars. You know, you can find mistakes in everything, but I think the mu- the, the music to the film itself is so good that I do believe purple rain still stands the test of time. I think you can pop that in to somebody that has never seen it or, or never heard Prince before. You can pop it in and it's, it's still a fun movie to watch. You know, this goes back to something that you said earlier about the song When Doves Cry and how he sort of like wrote that kind of at the last minute or it was a late addition to the album, like it almost didn't make it. That's kind of the one song that isn't organically played in the movie. That's It's sort of like a music video interlude in the middle of the story, like at the end of Act 2. Like all the the other songs... It's very much a montage. Yeah, all the other songs sort of have like a... a, I mean, I guess the the duet that he has, Take Me With You, is sort of kind of the same way while they're on motorcycle but most of the other songs are played for a specific thematic point where he's performing them on on stage when yep. doves cry is kind of just that little like interlude it's like hey the song is also on the album let's do a montage here of what's going on in this guy's head it's kind of funny like i wonder if the movie was already being made at the time that they did that song and that's how it got kind of shoehorned in there probably you know i wouldn't doubt that and the, and the funny thing is like you know, in terms of thematically, that song doesn't have anything to do with the subject matter they're showing on screen during the montage. Like a lot of times, if it's if it's a specific score written for or a, or a soundtrack song written for a piece of you know what he's thinking about in the movie is mm-hmm. the failed relationship and his father right. and, his, and his mother and the, the violence and how now he has turned on Apollonia and all these things going wrong in his life. But the song doesn't have anything to do with that. Yet it works. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah, you know, it just it it somehow it somehow works. It fits together like a piece of a puzzle, and it shouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you could apply that same sentence to a whole lot about Prince. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's no reason well, well, it should work, but it does. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, you can say it about almost everything. I will also point out too. My second introduction to B sides was the song "God." The B side to I believe the single "Purple Rain." I, th- I think mm-hmm. I think God was the B side of that. And that was the scene in the movie where he actually makes love to uh, Apollonia. And I remember watching that and being like, where is this song? How come this is not a soundtrack? I didn't understand that. And I don't know, I don't know if you remember. I'm, I'm curious to know if you remember the first time you actually saw Purple Rain. I remember going back to my, my first story about Nick Corbettaris. I remember he and I snuck into, we paid for another movie at Campus Cinema, Blackhawk Campus Cinema at NIU. <laughs> and we paid for another movie and snuck in to see Purple Rain. We paid for a PG movie and then went to see a rated R movie. And we got caught. <laughs> and we got pulled out of the theater. And the theater, we actually said our parents gave us permission. It's okay. They know. And so the theater called mom and <laughs> on the phone and actually had her on the phone and said, uh, are you aware that your son is trying to see a rated R movie? And God bless her. Mom said, mom said, yeah, that's fine. He's okay. He has my permission. And I think it's probably just because she had no idea what it was about. She didn't even know who Prince was. But she gave permission. And so we actually got back in with, with parental permission to go see Purple Rain in the theater. And that's, that's the first time I ever saw it. That's good. I I don't think my first time seeing it was anywhere near as momentous as that. I'm sure <laughs> it was just on TV. It was either you watching the tape or maybe like on VH1 or something like that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, I wanted to mention 
live performances because we we've kind of talked about mm. this in the periphery of how some of his songs, some of his work is just so much better live than it is on the album. <laughs> yeah. and even when the album version is completely great, it, it is one of my real sadnesses that I never got a chance to see him live. Have you? Did you ever see him live? I did. I oh. did. He was a bucket list, a bucket list performer yeah. that I, I thank God I got a chance. It was the 2004 Musicology Tour. Okay. And it was cool because I saw him at the Staples Center out here in L.A., and it was right around the time it just happened to coincide with this Prince resurgence. And it, I don't know exactly what led to it because this was before the Super Bowl performance. This was, uh, you know, Prince had been basically dead to the world for a little while. I don't remember exactly why, but then he released the album Musicology, and it had a, it had a couple good a couple good hits. It was well received by critics, but also the the per, the, the show was a very, very much a retroactive greatest hits kind of performance. It was mm. very much intermersed. Like at the time, I think Prince was doing tours up to that point just to promote the album he was touring for, and that was it. And he was kind of one of those, you know, Billy Corgan's been known to do this too, where they're like kind of anti their hits. They want everybody to know the new music, and so they're like, screw the fans. Yeah. But Prince did Prince did a greatest hits show along with Musicology, and everybody that went to the, the the with the ticket, you everybody got a CD of Musicology. We didn't have to pay for the CD, so he gave a CD to every single person in attendance. We had really good seats. It was me and my roommate Chris, and we saw him. And I'm telling you, I can't like seeing him jump from guitar to piano to drums to bass like he he made sure the audience knew and was well aware of his talent <laughs> but it was it was absolutely brilliant i mean i i respected him as an artist but i'd never seen it firsthand and when you have pretty good seats to see him play start purple rain on the piano by himself with nobody else on stage just a spotlight on him playing piano for the first verse and first chords and then the band comes in and then he jumps up and grabs a guitar and does the solo for Purple Rain. It's, I mean, you're like, this guy is the most talented person I've ever seen. It was absolutely, I mean, I, I thank God. I thank God that I got a chance to see him live because it was well worth. I mean, I would, I, I, I would have paid, I would have paid a thousand dollars to see it. <laughs> Um, what about, I mean, I, I guess we can just talk about some of the other performances that we weren't there for. I mean, you mentioned the Super Bowl performance, which is, uh, I, I can't think of really many Super Bowl performances that I'm impressed with. I mean, generally, I think <laughs> people, people always make a big deal about it, who's going to be doing the Super Bowl. And I'm always like, why do you care? It's never a good show. It's a bad venue. The acoustics suck. And I, but I, I kind of go back. I was like, the caveat being, Prince's very bizarre performance where again like you kind of you said it before like everything about that should not have worked but it right. did. <laughs> yeah, but, well the super the Super Bowl performance the cool thing about that I mean I remember it was it was the year the Bears were back in the Super Bowl. Mm -hmm. So the unfortunately, you know, let's not talk about the Rex Grossman Bears, but hey, but the, uh, the, that, Prince that, was the best part about that Super Bowl. Yes, it was. But that that brought me back to DeKalb to watch it with with you guys. And I think I think Angie was there, I believe, because yep. she predicted Devin Hester would run a, <laughs> a kickback for a touchdown. Somehow she won that bet. But <laughs> I, I I do recall like that was kind of 
you know, what I said about musicology in 2004 kind of brought him back a, a little bit to the Prince fans. It brought him back into, into the mindset of people. But I think the Super Bowl performance kind of brought him back mainstream, where everybody, everybody saw him perform that and do his hits, and everybody was kind of like, oh, my God, I forgot about Prince. That was kind of the sentiment afterwards. And I remember reading articles and everybody talking about how he made the halftime show relevant again. And you know the story as well. Hey, you, I'll let you tell it. But the, the story about how they were terrified, producers were terrified when it started raining. It was in Miami and it started pouring. Yeah. And Prince walking out in stiletto heels. <laughs> stiletto. You know, everybody was like, what are we going to do? And I'll let you, I'll give you the credit right here. What was Prince's line? Can we make it rain more? <laughs> <laughs> absolutely absolutely so there was something something so freaking brilliant about this guy that was like you know it like didn't phase him at all he's like electric guitars electricity plugged in all the stuff dancing yeah, with and, background dancers right, and for, for those of you if you haven't seen it i'll put up a link to like show the video of it you know, on youtube or something so you can see it you kind of have to see it he's not just on a stage like you think of like a woodstock concert or stage he's got a stage that is a completely glass top stage yes. in the shape of the love sign the, the uh, symbol that he had kind of changed his name <laughs> to so it's this freaky thing that's sort of like a cruciform in shape. He's walking out in heels. He's got two dancers, like twin sisters, that are in eight-inch stilettos, mm-hmm. and it's raining. Like, the water is coming down hard. And again, like, electric guitar, like, plugged in, like, glass wick with electric lights underneath it, like, so he's underlit. All of these people yep. were going to, like, the pyrotechnics for this thing. The producers are like, we're going to electrocute a music star on live television. We're going to kill this guy. Yeah. And he's like, bring yeah, it on. Bring yeah. it. I want more rain. <laughs> yep. And then, absolutely. And then, of course, and then, of course, it was fitting that he ends, he plays purple rain, sure. which was just absolutely perfect. Like you couldn't have asked for a better scenario. Which I almost <laughs> wonder if, like, the, if that was planned, like if he was counting on the rain, or if he just ad libbed that one because of the the moment. Because the, the the other weird thing about that set was, yeah, he wasn't promoting himself. He wasn't promoting any new music. He starts off. He opens the show with "Let's Go Crazy." He later plays a Jimi Hendrix song. And he later right. plays a Foo Fighters song, and then he comes back to Purple Rain. Like I don't like. Yeah, it, you're right. You're right. It wasn't. It was very, very. It was. It wasn't self promotion. It wasn't like touring or or trying to promote or sell a new album. It was like I said. It was kind of like a, it was a weird sort of thing that kind of just brought him back into the public eye mm-hmm. and and made him relevant again going forward for the next couple of years, you know, people started to buy his records again. And it, you know, I can't explain how the stars aligned that night and made it perfect, but he gave one of the greatest halftime show performances ever. And it rained and he sang purple rain. And it, it, it just, like I said, Hollywood couldn't have scripted a better night. Mm-hmm. I do think that is the thing. Like all of the music he produces, I don't think people really understand how talented, like what a virtuoso he is. Like even if he only played the one mu- musical instrument, and he can play like every musical instrument, yeah. uh, even if he just played guitar, the things that he could do with that is another I, performance that I keep. I keep. I'll, I'll watch this once. I know. A month. I know where you're going. It I already was, know where you're going. <laughs> it was the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction of George Harrison. Yep, 2004. I'll, yep, I'll, I'll put this again on, on the show notes for this one. You can find it. A group, it was a, uh, an assembly, uh, an ensemble of artists performed the song While My Guitar Gently Weeps. Uh, it was fronted mm-hmm. by Tom Petty and Jeff Lynne from ELO. Uh, I think George mm-hmm. Harrison's son Donnie was there, and so was uh, Steve Winwood. Uh, and yeah. Prince was also there. Now, Prince doesn't show up until halfway through the song. And then he right. just shows up to play the guitar solo at the end, and he basically 
steals it. And I mean steals it because you get the, the sense that Tom Petty and Jeff Lynne are trying to sing and like trying to get go through another verse or chorus or something, and Prince won't let them. Like He won't surrender yeah. the music. He's taken it over, and he just plays yeah, well, the guitar I, I think, for three I think minutes. That, I, think more, I, I don't think it was as much that they were trying to keep singing. I think they were probably trying to end the song. <laughs> I think they probably figured at that point, you know, he'll do like 16 bars of a solo, and then we'll just end the song. And Prince just kept going. And what's, what's, what, first of all, you're absolutely right. It is one of the greatest, single greatest live guitar solos ever witnessed on TV. And I'm putting that ahead of people like Eddie Van Halen and Slash and, and like people that are known as guitarists. Prince, who's not known as a guitarist, he's known as a musician for all kinds of things, gave one of the single greatest perform like that was one of the greatest guitar solos ever. And it was so impressive and so, uh, I mean, I, re- I remember watching, if you look closely at the video, and I, again, I want people to go back and watch this, mm-hmm. Jeff, uh, George Harrison's son, yes. playing uh, playing right behind Prince during the solo, looks dumbfounded. <laughs> like, he, he absolutely looks, it, his face is priceless, because he's blown away, like, I'm witnessing something that is historic and epic. You, you can see the look in his eyes that he's thinking, my father was George Harrison, and I'm watching the most talented guitarist I have ever seen. Like, the best musician in history is right in front Absolutely. of me. Absolutely. And Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, so that was, that, that, I, I totally agree with you. Like, if, if anybody hasn't seen that, go back and watch that. Prince just killed, just killed that guitar solo. <laughs> and I just, it's, it's, again, it's in the attitude too. It's not just that he does such a good like job with the instrumentation and the musicality, the talent. It's that he hijacks the song from people oh, like yeah, Tom sure. Petty and, and, and Steve oh. Winwood. He takes the song and then once it's over, once it's done, he takes, he like rips his guitar like over his shoulder and just throws it up in the air to fall in like the crowd or whatever and walks off. Doesn't stand for the applause, doesn't stay for the, the crowd or everything. Everybody else is bowing and, you know, giving the thanks. He is off in the shadows instantly. It's like, yep. Yep. Absolutely. That's amazing. And which actually, that leads me to another story. If, if we're going to go into story mode right now, yeah, about should, a, a couple of Prince stories. One of my favorite stories about Prince, and this has been, I, I, this has been verified by a couple of sources, Ryan Seacrest, Nigel Lithgow, the creators of American Idol. So it was, I think it was the 2000, I think it was the same year. I want to say it was the 2004 American Idol finale. Um, Prince was booked to play right before they gave the awards up. And the story goes, Prince actually contacted them and said, I, I actually like the show. I like the singing contest. So he contacted the producer, Nigel Lithgow, and said, uh, you know, I want to play the finale. And of course, he was like, yeah, absolutely, whatever you want to do. Now, at this point, Prince was promoting a new album. He was promoting, I think it was, I think this was 3121. And that was what he was trying to get that out to, plus he loved the show. Now, they kept, the producers kept the entire crowd, the entire production company, the entire, the only people that knew about it were Ryan Seacrest himself and Nigel Lithgow. Now, the band shows up earlier in the day to rehearse the song and do a sound check. They did a sound check. Prince wasn't there. They did it. And nobody knew anything about Prince coming or what was going to happen. <laughs> so, and this is, again, this is, this story is coming from Ryan Seacrest himself. Yep. He said, so they come back from the last commercial break before the end of the show. Nobody had heard from Prince. Nobody got a hold of him. They had no idea if he was coming. So Ryan Seacrest on stage live is prepared to go to the, the results. And the band's ready, but it, nobody knows anything about it. So if you watch, if you watch the actual video, Ryan Seacrest says, okay, so we had some surprises lined up for everybody, but that's it. We're done with the surprises. We're ready to go to the results. 
And then you can hear something in his ear. Uh, he must have gotten a cue from somebody that said, <laughs> Prince just pulled up out that. <laughs> so Ryan Seacrest stops in mid-sentence and goes, but before we go to the results, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, and he didn't even get the word Prince out of his mouth. The back door opens. Apparently Prince walked out of his limo in through the back door, onto the stage, played two songs from 3121. I think it was Lolita and, and something else. Absolutely killed it. Just destroyed it. It was fantastic with no rehearsal or anything. And then when the song was done, walked off the stage, walked into his car, drove away. Never Didn't wait for applause. Didn't shake hands with anybody. Didn't wave to the crowd. Did nothing. And it was just another day in the life of Prince. <laughs> and afterwards, I've, I've heard I've heard Ryan Seacrest, because he's got a morning radio show out here in L.A., he's talked about it afterwards, just saying, like, I, w- I was absolutely dumbfounded. He goes, I didn't know what to expect. I didn't think he'd be there. And then he walks on, and he gave the best performance ever. And I wanted to hug him and shake his hand and blah, blah. And he was like, and he was gone. It was like <laughs> it never happened. <laughs> Oh man, the Hollywood stories about Prince are phenomenal. Like, I mean, and we should say that at the time of our recording, just a couple of days ago, Charlie Murphy died, the brother of yeah. Eddie Murphy, but yeah. probably best known for us as a regular on the Chappelle Show, which is a criminally underrated comedy show. But Charlie Murphy's true Hollywood stories. I have said this before, and I will make the argument again, that this true Hollywood story of Rick James, that episode is one of the top five best half an hours of television. I will fight anybody who, who argues that. I will put that up there. Agreed. No, no argument for me. Um, totally agree with you. And a close second is the other story that he did uh, that same season a few episodes later when he did – it was a shorter segment, but his true Hollywood <laughs> story of Prince. And yep. it's Prince in his full – looking like a – uh, how would you even describe his outfits? <laughs> Victorian, <laughs> transgender Victorian. Uh, yeah, I don't, like a matador too. Like <laughs> he's got like the yeah. full look. <laughs> and and Prince invites Eddie Murphy, Charlie Murphy, and their entourage back to his place. Then challenges them to a game of basketball. And everybody swears that Prince won, and that like yep. he's still in in his clothes, like didn't change, didn't wear like sweats or shorts or anything like that. <laughs> and they still say that like in his cousin, like he was a good basketball. And I've heard I've heard other people sort of confirm that that Prince was actually a really good basketball for B. Like I think he played in school, despite the fact that he, he played in like, high school. Yeah, he yeah. played in high school. He was a point guard, and and apparently the, the, he was he was good. He knew just, what he was doing, so. despite the fact that he's so short. But but yeah, they, he won, and then he served them pancakes. I, I mean, I can't even do justice to the story. It's something that you just have to watch and see Charlie Murphy's reaction as he's telling the story. Uh, yeah, he's, he's, it's, it's great because you're, you're absolutely right. Like, Charlie, Charlie Murphy telling the story is actually embarrassed. He's <laughs> yeah. literally embarrassed that he underestimated Prince Plant. He's like, he's like he, 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 he beat us and gave us pancakes afterwards and made fun of us. Yes. <laughs> Which is, again, like, what makes that story work is, like, you, nobody in their right mind would make that story up. First no, all, no. You, like, you don't need to like every like we've been talking about him for over an hour now. Nobody needs to inflate Prince's ego. Nobody needs to make up stories about how great he is and other stuff. Like the music is enough, but then to find out that wait, he schooled your ass in basketball? <laughs> and, yep, yep. And then served as you a matter of fact, then, as a matter of fact, there's more reasons for Charlie Murphy to keep that story quiet. <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then the similar story, Jimmy Fallon, he did on his show, he told the story of playing uh, ping pong against Prince. 
how Prince just schooled him too, and it was the same thing. Like he challenged, like Jimmy, like just went to the strange bar, and in the back behind this curtain, there's a ping pong table, and he like Prince invited him, but then he didn't think Prince was going to show up, and Prince just kind of show is there all of a sudden, and yep, yep, plays, and then he like beats him like twenty to ten, like it's not it's not even close. And after that, like Jimmy like goes like picks up the ball from the fan when he turns around, like Batman, Prince has just vanished. He's gone. Yep. Yep, exactly, exactly. Hey, and and speaking of ping pong, so if if any of you viewers didn't see Prince's cameo on the on the sitcom New Girl, go watch Prince made a cameo as himself on New Girl uh, a couple of years ago with uh, Zoe Deschanel show, mm-hmm. and he was absolutely hysterical. It's so funny, he had a pet butterfly that followed him around, and he played ping pong, and he made pancakes, and he did all the Prince things you want to do, and the greatest line of the episode is when Zoe Deschanel's character and, and her boyfriend, yeah, I Nick, can't remember the name. Nick, yeah, Nick, Nick. Yep. When, they, when they see him, they stand frozen at Prince's house because they snuck into a party and they see him and they like stand frozen and there's this moment of awkwardness and Prince looks at them and goes, you guys can go ahead and scream now if you want. <laughs> and they both do. And they both just belt out these like blood-curdling screams like they're shocked and they can't believe that they're seeing him. But it's just... He's just so like hyper aware of who he was and mm-hmm. the, the reaction. Like he's like, "Go ahead, get it out of your system." It was just so funny. So go watch that. Are there any other like any other like stories or points? I was gonna kind of bring it into like final thoughts and stuff, but were there any other like? Yeah, well, a couple of really quick notes. I just want to point out to to the non Prince diehard fans and everything. I mean, there were there were a couple of things I want to clear up. I know that there was a lot of uh, there was there was a lot of backlash against Prince during the We Are the World uh, Michael Jackson uh, recording with Lionel Richie uh, that whole thing. There was a lot of backlash because Prince didn't appear on that. He was asked to and he chose not to. And I think a lot of people kind of turned against him. And I know from, from multiple sources, again, it's, it's been confirmed. And I think even Lionel Richie himself said that Prince's reaction to it was he said the song sucked. <laughs> he didn't want to have anything to do with it. But he, he, he personally donated a million dollars to the charity USA for Africa and recorded a song that was on the B-side to that single called Pour the Tears in Your Eyes. So he actually did partake in it uh, just you know, it went under under the public radar. So he, he, you know, for the people that think that it sucks that he turned down We Are the World, he gave money and uh, and a song. And then uh, the other thing I wanted to mention too was to all the people out there that still question why the name change and why the symbol thing kind of came up. I mean, we could go on for hours talking about this mm-hmm. separately, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go that deep into it. But just for the people that think it was just an artist being eccentric right. and being you know that kind, of, and that seemed to be kind of the response. A lot of people just kind of thought Prince was just being Prince, and they thought it was weird and whatever. He changed his name to an unpronounceable symbol. Blah blah blah. The the details behind that are. It was a contract dispute because yeah. at the time, Warner Brothers owned the rights to the music of Prince. So anything that Prince recorded would go to Warner Brothers. And they had contract stipulations. Prince wrote and recorded. He, he had enough material to release an album a year. And they didn't want him to do that because then they couldn't capitalize on trying. They, you know, a record label's job is to try and milk an album for years and yeah. keep releasing single after single after single so they can milk an album. So long story short... Prince said, I'm not going to abide by that. I want out of my contract. They said, no, you owe us a couple of more albums, blah, 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 and, and back and forth. So he ended up fulfilling his contract with them and gave them a bunch of albums that he hated, just the stuff he didn't like, but he kept giving them to him, including like a greatest hits album that he, he gave him just to fulfill his contract. But during that time, while he wanted to record other music and put out other music, he changed his name to that symbol, and it was just because 
he couldn't legally record music under the name of Prince. Mm -hmm. So again, going back to for legal reasons, for all the people that think he was just being an arrogant, pompous, eclectic artist, there were legal reasons why he did that. So, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't just him being, it wasn't a, it wasn't like a vanity tour kind of thing. No. Yeah. I'd heard about that. And I remember it was just his, his reaction way of getting around to what he felt was unfair conditions with the studio, which I I mean, (laughs) the, the stories that we hear now about the way the studio system used to treat their artists. It's it's kind of incredible that anybody would, would side with them over the artist, but I know. Yeah. The same thing, you know, going back to the same thing happened with Springsteen, you know, like years ago, that's a whole I'm not going to get into it, but Springsteen basically in the, in the seventies, right after one of his biggest hits, which was, I think, I want to say it was like darkness on the edge of town or Mm -hmm. something. He actually had the same issue with his record label where he couldn't record for three years before he came up with, I think, Born to Run. Um, But at the time, you know, everybody, all his advisors, everybody was saying, this is career suicide for you to sit out for three years after a hit. Like, what are you doing? And he said, I'm not going to record for this label anymore. I'm I'm done. I'm going to let my contract expire and then I'll do it myself. So it's not uncommon. I've heard kind of a similar thing with um, the writer Stephen King. Uh, Apparently he was changing book publishers uh, and whatever one he said, like, no, it's a, you, you owe us one more book under contract, like whatever you write next, you know, we own it. And he didn't want to give them what he was working on. So he had the book Pet Cemetery that he had written years earlier and he just put it in a drawer. He didn't like the book that he wrote. He didn't think it was good. He thought it was too dark even for him. He's like, no, this is, this is too much. But eventually like the, his old publisher, they're like, no, we want your next book. He's like, well, here, you can have this one. He gave him Pet Cemetery, And now most people think that's like one of the scariest books that he's ever done. So, right. You know. Right. But yeah, uh, we should wrap this one and bring it to a close. We kind of talked about all of these topics. Uh, what are just some final thoughts about Prince, about his music, about his death? I mean, what does that kind of meant for you? I mean, what do you think? Uh, can well, we I'm, can we talk about his legacy yet, or is it still even after a year? Is it too soon to think about that? I actually don't. I don't think it's too soon. I think I think he's one of those artists that I think people could start talking about his legacy you know, while he was still active and still doing stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my lasting thoughts about Prince are, and, and of course, a lot of this is retroactive, you know, like in retrospect now, after his death, I paid a lot more attention to him and I remembered more about getting into him and all these stories kind of came back and, you know, th- this kind of stuff happened. After he died, I'm a lot more aware of what I liked about him to begin with. And I kind of had forgotten over the years. I definitely think that, you know, he is probably one of the single greatest talents of the music industry all time. I would, I would probably say all in terms of prolific writing uh, as a lyricist, as a composer, as a musician of every instrument, uh, he's probably one of the single greatest talents that we've ever seen. And um, his ability to, to a wide range of genres, he never, he never painted himself into a corner with just playing funk or just playing R&B or just playing rock or whatever. You know, he was a chameleon. So I, you know, it's, it's definitely... In a, in a year where, or in recent years, when it seems like celebrities are kind of falling by the wayside left and right, you know, I, I definitely think that there's his legacy is going to be bigger than a lot of people. As a matter of fact, at the risk of offending some people, and I, I hope I don't, but you know, it seems like kind of when Michael Jackson died, people mourned him for a couple of days, and then it kind of went by the wayside, and then nobody ever talked about him again. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, I got to be honest, I think that, uh, you know, Prince, you know, just that Lenny Kravitz just did a tribute for him at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame this year, uh, which is going to air, I think, either, I think next weekend on HBO. I think that the, the legacy of Prince is going to be bigger and, and withstand the test of time a lot more. Mm-hmm. I personally can attest to the fact that he influenced me as a writer, as a musician, 
as uh, a personality in terms of you know kind of finding your own your own niche, finding your own voice. Uh, even choices that he made, I didn't agree with. You know, there was there was a period of time where I remember going to the Salvation Army and buying the trench coat, and then buying <laughs> getting getting a ton of ripped fabric dye and trying to make it purple, and trying to explain to mom and dad why I wanted to get lace gloves and cut the fingers off and stuff. You know, I, there were times where I did that stuff, and but you know, long story short, I I, I think that he's. I think I have a bigger, you know, as time passes with his death, the more music that comes out, the more stories you hear about him, the more people reflect on him. I think that it's, he's going to be, he's going to end up being somewhere at, you know, on the, on the epic level of like the Beatles, the Doors, uh, the Stones, like he, he will, he will only gain in stature over time. Yeah. I, I will cop to that. If I had a different body type and body shape, I would have made more of an effort to dress like him. Um, and you mentioned just in the last calendar year 2016 we lost a whole lot of amazing talented people from david bowie to alan rickman to gene wilder leonard cohen yeah i mean for me prince and carrie fisher those two are the ones that really hurt me the most like that hurt me where i live and really just had the most and, – and made me kind of go back and revisit what I loved about them and just Prince in particular, like the music. And I, it's, it sounds selfish, but I was I, I was really glad like after his passing, like within a month or something, that Spotify and Pandora and a lot of these streaming services got access to his catalog. And some people yeah, were like, well, yeah, no, that's, you're not paying for the music. That's not what he would have wanted. I was like, okay, I get that, but – I think it's more people have access to it now. You can sample more. You can get a better sense of who he was as an artist. I, I think the exposure to the music is what he would have wanted. And I agree. I, think that's, I agree. That and means a little bit. Yeah. And I think, I think that, you know, case in point, I think that the last, you know, the last uh, couple, maybe just the last year, the, you know, the tour that he was on when he unfortunately passed, with just a, a a piano and and mic tour that he was doing, but he was just playing all his hits and getting it out to like new fans. That was kind of where he was at. So I do believe that the all the intricacies about the perfectionism of Prince, which is the only reason that he didn't release everything he ever did. You know, the reason he held out with a lot of stuff wasn't necessarily for money. It was always more about just him not being happy with the product kind of thing. But I think as artists get older and as he, you know, retroactively looking back, the more shows he did playing his greatest hits, I think is an indication of him wanting to get just the music out there. So I, I, w- I would actually, I would agree with you and argue against people that think that, you know, the streaming services now getting access to his music are not what he would want. I think it is. I think it actually is what he wants. All right, well, uh, with that, we'll leave you listeners with the advice to go out and check out some of his music. Uh, I'm going to include a lot on this episode. And once again, I want to thank all of you for tuning in and listening to the show. Neil, thank you very much for uh, for having this conversation with me. This is a, a discussion that we've sort of flirted around, but this is lo- a long time coming. <laughs> I'm surprised we haven't had this conversation before. Uh, true, true that. I'm, I'm, I appreciate you inviting me in to do this. I'm excited. I'm, I'm blessed that we both share this passion in common. And I, much like yourself, I'm pretty sure that I'm going to, you know, go listen to some prints right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to because I'm editing the show. So. <laughs> 
<laughs> Once again, for those of you listening, thank you very much. Uh, this has been a special episode of Fire and Water Presents. I'm Ryan Daly with my brother Neil Daly. Thank you very much for listening, uh, and have a good night. Have a sexy night, let's say. Hey!